Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, of course, we'll kick it off and get moving along. We've been dealing with dispensations over the last few weeks, and we're going to continue in that same direction. And so uh, let's look at 2 Timothy 2.15, and then we'll uh, move along. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. The Bible says, Study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, Rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's really what our goal is. We want to rightly divide the scriptures. We want to put things in their proper places so that we come to the right conclusions. And as a result of that, we've been studying a little bit on dispensations. Again, dispensations are a means by which we can uh, divide the scriptures in a way that makes sense. That it recognizes how God's dealing with mankind in a certain period of time and some of the, just the, the steps and some of the things that he puts in place. We think about those dispensations, and there's this five-fold pattern, it seems, that how God works with those living in those particular time periods. He gives a responsibility to the people, or to a person, or to a family, as we'll see here. Uh, in this case, uh, today, we'll look at Abraham, and uh, note that. But he gives a responsibility to the people. Uh, unfortunately, they fail to meet God's requirements. It seems like it always ends up that way, whether it's them, or us, or anybody else. Their failure is judged, God extends grace and hope for the future. And so we see he gives them a responsibility, they fail to meet the requirement, their failure is judged, God extends grace and a hope for the future. We see some things going on here, and boy, I tell you what, uh, there's a judgment that takes place, unfortunately, and it seems like, man, there's no hope for the next generation, and then God turns around with his grace, and he provides another opportunity. And it's just amazing how God has worked through the years. And one day, one day we're going to come across the time when there'll be no sin. God's going to deal with it, I mean, right out of the gate. And uh, the, the devil will be locked away and sin will be addressed and dealt with. And we won't have to worry about that anymore. We won't have to deal with it anymore. But we haven't gotten there yet. So nonetheless, we're kind of looking over the Word of God and trying to understand some of these things and uh, put things in their proper perspective. So again... Uh, we thank the Lord for how he's working, and we're grateful to the Lord for the Word of God that explains and outlines what we need to know. So let's go ahead and have a quick word of prayer, and then we'll continue with this next dispensation. Number four, we're going to look at the dispensation of family or promise. Depends that you read about it. You can study people. They'll, some will call it the dispensation of the family. Some will call it dispensation of a promise, and uh, it's the same thing. And so we're just going to take a look at it tonight. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for this time we have together for the express purpose of learning your word. Lord, that's why we're here. We want to glean from your scriptures. We want to ultimately be able to apply your truth in a way that enables us to fulfill our God-given purpose for existing. Lord, we love you. We thank you for just another opportunity to, to, to hear from you and to glean from your word. We'll thank you as you speak to us, as you work in our lives as you bring change that's needed. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so we're going to deal with this dispensation and, uh, of, of family or promise. Before we do, we've already discussed and we've talked about the dispensation of innocence. And again, we saw that Adam and Eve were given kind of a, a directive. They were told not to eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, uh, they, uh, um, they failed to obey God. And of course, that led to some uh, unfortunately, uh, a real problem. Uh, they disobeyed God. And uh, the curse and the, the, the ultimately their death was a result of all of that. But God stepped up to the plate again and he, 
he gave them another opportunity. You know, we see that the, they, were, they had the skins that they wore out of the garden, that the blood sacrifice had been provided and so forth. And uh, we learned a couple things. Well, first of all, we learned that men claim that innocence and a perfect environment are safeguards against wrongdoing. Well, we found out that's not the case at all. If that was the case, Adam and Eve would have succeeded, but um, they didn't. And so we moved on to conscience. And so now we have Cain and Seth, the offspring of Adam and Eve and their families. And, um, you know, they have already been expelled from the garden. They've been kicked out, if you will. And, and we're going to see that for about 1,600 and so years, they're going to go ahead and uh, this time period is going to continue. Uh, they're supposed to do good. They're going to offer blood sacrifices. But right out of the chute, right out of the gate again, we got some problems. And we see wickedness just seems to fill the hearts of mankind. And uh, as a result, there's a worldwide flood in chapter 6 of the book of Genesis. And uh, yet, on the other side, God says, you know what? There's a man here and his family that I'm going to go ahead and protect and save. And they'll, we'll kick things off again with them. And so he did. And then we saw human government. And we saw Noah and his descendants now. And, of course, they were told that uh, they were to scatter and multiply. Well, unfortunately, they didn't scatter and multiply. And 325 years later, they're building a tower to try to reach heaven. And, of course, uh, the Lord comes down and confounds their language. And, uh, well, they're scattered all right, but it's not of choice. Uh, it's because God made it happen. And so it would seem that, man, once again, mankind has failed, and here we are in the same boat. But God, again, in his grace, we're going to see now, provides another man, a man by the name of Abraham. And again, he's going to be chosen. And we're going to see the Jewish race begin as a result of Abraham. And uh, so God's grace again, uh, his grace again. Um, it's just amazing, really. We, every time man thinks that he can do something without God, he realizes he can't. You know, whether it was innocence, whether it was conscience, whether it was human government. I mean, there's just, we found there wasn't any person alive that possessed, I don't care what their education, doesn't matter what their experience was. They just weren't righteous enough to rule, you know, and, and we just, every time we turn around, we realize that it's going to have to be God's grace. It just has to be God's grace every single time. So here we are now, this dispensation of the family or promise, and it's going to extend from the call of Abraham, and it's really going to go all the way to the Exodus, basically, till we get the, uh, the, 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 the tablets up there on Mount Sinai, and it's known, again, as the dispensation of the family or promise. And so... Um, after this dispersion and at Babel, of course, the uh, uh, people on the earth scattered about. And pretty soon they, they're multiplying, of course. They're, 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 they're reaching uh, much further out than they used to, of course. Um, I'm not sure how much of the world was actually occupied at that point. But what I do know is that they were definitely dispersed and they began to multiply just like God had intended originally. The bad part was is that Noah and his sons become idolaters. That's just the reality of it. Uh, the, the, the world is, is turned upside down. As a matter of fact, even Abraham's father was an idolater. You know, you think about the call of Abraham, you think, oh, yeah, he must have come from a really solid family. He did, a solid family of idolaters, but not godly people. Look, if you would, over in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2. I think sometimes it's kind of hard to imagine this. It's hard to wrap our minds around this truth that Abraham is called out of a, 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 an environment, even a home of idolaters. 
And uh, that's kind of interesting. You're going to note also along the way, we'll talk about it a little bit, but uh, Israel will war with this the rest of their days. Notice what it says in Joshua 24 too. <clears throat> the Bible says, And Joshua said unto all the people, Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah. Now again, before you assume that that flood means the, the flood uh, like as in Noah flood, we recognize here he's talking about a flood, but he says even Terah, the father of Abraham. Terah comes after the flood. That's not the, the body of water he's referring to. So what we see here is that on the other side of the flood of, in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. They served other gods. That means that Abraham's daddy was an idolater. He worshipped idols. I don't know if he made them out of stone or wood. I'm not sure how that all worked exactly, but in those days they worshipped a lot of crazy things. And I can only imagine him getting in those high places and worshipping the idols that well, everybody else did as well. And so here we have uh, this uh, family that is an idolatrous family. And uh, idolatry, let's face it, was ingrained in the people. And unfortunately, uh, it, it was a problem. Look, if you would, in Joshua 24, 15. Because now we're going to see Joshua addressing the people even in his day. And he's going to tell them, it's time for you to make a choice. Now, early on in Joshua, he's pointing out again that even Abraham's daddy was an idolater. And now he's going to point out that they were idolaters in Egypt. Now watch what he says here in chapter 24, verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. So what's going on again is that the people of God are idolaters. Notice he says here, serve the other side of the flood or the gods of that. Uh, let's see, um, uh, I'll, get, I'll get to that other, other passage in a minute. I'm sorry, uh, we've already seen, um, I, I got ahead of myself a little bit on this. But anyway, it seems, he says, listen, I'm telling you that there's, there's idolatry that runs amok amongst the Israelites. And that's really the bottom line here. And unfortunately, it was ingrained in them early on, and it will continue with them for a long time, uh, well, throughout their history, really. They never overcome it. Matter of fact, that's why they go into Babylonian captivity, because, again, of the idolatry. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, when you think about that, because, you know, we look back on them and we think, they're a bunch of idiots. How in the world could they be so stupid, worshiping idols after everything God did for them? We get that attitude, too. Problem is, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. And I have to ask myself, why are you such an idiot, preacher? Why do you worship idols? Because you know what we all do, to some degree or another. And you know what? It's something that's ingrained in us. We grew up in it, just like Israel did. And you know what? No matter what Israel did, every time we turn around, every time they got close to God, after a generation or so, they end up back in their idolatry again. You know why? We always fall back into our comfort zone. You ever wonder why people that are involved in alcohol, drugs, or immorality always slip back into the same thing? Because that's what's their comfort zone. That's what they use to deal with their stress. It's a, it's a stressor. It's a trigger. Can I tell you, idolatry is a trigger, really, for us. It, it, we find ourselves falling back into it. 
And those things are just simply idolatry. If you really want to break it down, you really want to move into that direction, every one of those things becomes an idol in our lives. It's amazing how we think ourselves to be so good and so much better than the world. But in reality, it's only the grace of God again, because if it's really left up to us, we'd slip right back into idolatry again. But fortunately for us, God has grace and he extends it to us. And in that goodness of God, we hopefully see how good he is and we say, well, you know what? I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to keep trying to turn back to you if I turn away. And boy, it's so good when God's there to receive us in those times. Unfortunately, just like Israel, sometimes there's some Egypt moments. Sometimes there's bondage moments in our lives. We have to be enslaved to sin a while before we recognize how wicked and sinful and harmful it is. And hopefully that's not the case tonight in my life and in yours, but I know in the past I've had to find myself there. And finally, in the goodness of God, I've had to say thank you for rescuing me out of this bondage. Now, again, those days were marked by idolatry, and no doubt God had his witnesses. So, so, but, but here's the thing, we don't read about them. So we have this Tower of Babel, and they're scattered abroad now. And uh, through all those years, okay, uh, we, we see uh, people moving. And about 120 years after this uh, particular um, uh, uh, Tower of Babel, we, we see things taking place before uh, ultimately Abraham's going to be called. And um, it, people just keep getting worse and worse and worse again. You would have thought we'd have learned from, you know, chapter 6, right? I mean, because remember, Noah's around. Remember, Seth's still around. Why in the world couldn't they figure it out? Why, why couldn't they? You don't read about them standing up and preaching like they did before the flood. Why not? I don't get it. Why, why doesn't God share that with us? I don't know why exactly. I don't know if they even were, to be frank with you. What I do know is when he finally says, you know what? You guys have failed. Human government just doesn't work. You can't do this without me. It's obvious. He calls a man by the name of Abraham. And he calls him out of an idolatrous culture and out of an idolatrous home. Listen, there is no excuse in the world for us to stay idolaters. There's no excuse in the world for us to stay in our sin. You do not have a right to say, well, I was raised this way. I can't help it. I'm sorry, I, have no, I can't deal with this. Now listen, the temptation for all of us is, is to somehow blame something or somebody for the condition we find ourselves in. But Abraham has proved positive that it doesn't matter how you're raised. You cannot, there's no excuse for not obeying Christ. No excuse. Boy, I'll tell you what, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow sometimes. Because, you know, we just talked about it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. We have that vain philosophy of the world that says literally you're not responsible for your past and you can't control your future because of your past. Therefore, we have to accept everything about you and your flaws and have to deal with that. It's my responsibility to accept you the way you are. The only problem is, God says it's your responsibility to turn to him. And he says this is the standard for everyone. Well, we've got to get back to God's standard, not the world's standard. The vain philosophies of this world are damaging and they're destroying the local church. They're wrecking Christianity because there's no absolute truth. This absolute truth is simple. Abraham was born in an idolatrous home, raised in an idolatrous home, and yet God called him and he turned from his family and went out to serve the Lord. Wow. I don't know about you, but that's big time. 
Can you imagine? Oh, by the way, Dad, Jehovah God spoke to me. Well, yeah, we're good with Jehovah God, and we're good with this God, and this God, and this God, and this God, and this God. No, Dad, you don't get it. Jehovah God spoke to me. Told me I got to go. Go where, son? I have no idea. He's going to show me, but I got to take the first step. Can you imagine how that dad's wrapped, what he thought about that? I don't know about you, but I got to believe that he had a lot of questions for his son. I got to believe he was really concerned. Well, what are you talking about? Well, dad, I'm just going to tell you there's only one God, you know. There's only one, his name's Jehovah God, and he just called me and talked to me. No, son, listen, just slow down a little bit. Take it easy. I'm sure there's, I'm, I'm sure there's a little more to the story. Let's just take your time. I'm, you're, you're being emotionally, you, listen, that preacher was preaching. You got emotionally stirred. Don't let that change your life. Don't let it change your direction. Come on now. It's getting a little bit too serious right now. Just give it a week or two and you'll find you'll fall back into your normal routine. People get all on the teens, you know. They make all these emotional decisions. I wish we'd just make some. Emotional or not, I wish we'd make some decisions in life. Let the Lord worry about whether they're emotional or not. Let Him speak to us. Wouldn't that be something if we just made a few decisions for the Lord? Said we listen to messages all the time, and if we're not careful, we'll sit and never respond. And yet, then on the other hand, if we do respond, do we follow through? Well, we've got to be careful with those things. Got to be careful. So, what I know is that you and I have the power to overcome this flesh. We can be victorious. There's not one excuse why we can't serve the Lord, no matter what our background, no matter where we come from, no matter what we've been involved in. That's a wonderful truth, that's a liberating truth. So let's not allow our past to hold us back at all because it has no power over us unless we give it power because we're now, as we said this Sunday, new creatures in Christ. We can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. So these days were marked by idolatry. But he had, I'm sure he had witnesses in those days. He just didn't record any of them. So God chose a single person and family to start all over again. He chooses Abram. Now, turn to Genesis chapter 12. Let's look at verses 1 through 7, because we're going to see this call, and we're going to see this challenge, as well as this covenant that's made concerning Abram. He's not called Abraham until a little bit later, but, you know, often we'll use the name Abraham because that's how we know him so well. So if I mess up, please be be nice. Genesis chapter 12, way back there in the first book of the Bible. Man, there's a lot going on in Genesis. I mean, a lot. Chapter 12, verse 1. Note it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will shew thee. Interestingly enough, and I do think this is interesting, notice again, he tells him to get away. He says, he says And from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will shew thee. Can I ask you this? Just Let me ask you this. What's the directive God gives to every believer that comes to Christ concerning the world? Separate from it. Why? Because if you don't, you'll end up right back in it. That's, that's what we see here. It's right off the bat. We see this element right on from Genesis, right from the very beginning when God begins to deal with just light and darkness. This is the first day. 
there's a distinction, there's a separation that's made. Throughout the Word of God, separation is taught from the very first chapter of Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And so we see that here in chapter 12. And he says in verse 2, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now there's uh, just a, a, you know, a tremendous covenant. We go on in verse 4. So Abraham departed, Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 70 and 5 years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. I'm just kind of curious. And again, I can't help but stop every once in a while. But I'm just kind of curious. How old was Abraham, Abram when he died? Wasn't he 175? Abraham, didn't he live to be 175 years old? I mean, maybe you don't remember. I, I'm just asking because I don't, I'm not 100%, but I think it was 175. But he's 75 years old now. So let's just say that you live to be 80 years old. How does that make you? What's the percentage of breakdown here? See, 75 and say 175. What is that? Let's see, 50% would be 150 years old. So he's probably 40% of his age. So let's just say you live to be 80. 80 would be 40. So he's probably 35 years old in our day. And you know what? We, if we're not careful, you know what we do, don't we? Man, I'm setting my ways. I got too much going. I've already got a career started. I've already got this happening. I've got, I've got a family to take care of. I got responsibilities. And we often look at him and go, yeah, but he lived to be 175. He was just a young kid. He's probably 35 in our day. By 35, you've established yourself Usually, to some degree or another, you've already got a family started. You've got responsibilities. Boy, I'll tell you what, it's not as easy maybe to do what Abraham did as we might think. It took a lot of guts to do what he did. It took a lot of faith. And that's why we're going to read about him over in the book of Hebrews in the hall of faith, because he did take a step out by faith. Notice what it says here. He goes on to say in verse um, 5, And Abraham took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the, the land uh, under the place of Shechem, under the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. So he's right where God wants him, but he's in the midst of a bunch of raving maniacs. Idolaters. And they're not nice, all of them. They're not all very nice. Verse 7, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. You know the land where all these uh, Canaanites are in, Abram? I'm going to give it to you. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And you talk about a man of faith. He went, Okay, Lord, I'm going to worship you. Thank you for giving me all this. This is wonderful. So it begins with Abram and uh, the promise that God made to him. And that promise stated a couple of things, that he'd be the father of a great nation. He had no children yet, but he'd be the father of a great nation. That God would bless Abram and his descendants, that he would also bless the whole world through Abram and his descendant. And so Abraham goes on, and he's going to promote the one and only God, Jehovah, along the way, and here he is. He's stepping up to the plate. This dispensation has begun. Now, what are you going to do with this, Abram? What are you going to do with the covenant that I've given you? What are you going to do with this promise? 
going to carry my name into Canaan. You're going to go ahead and multiply in the land. You're going to go ahead and be obedient. And this promise was unconditional, by the way. It's interesting about this particular covenant or promise. It was unconditional. It meant that neither Abraham or his descendants really um, had to do anything in order for them to be enforced or to, for it to continue. They didn't have to do it. It didn't matter whether they were obedient or disobedient. The covenant was made. It was, on, it was there. It was how it was going to be no matter what. God made the covenant. God keeps the covenant. Aren't you glad that that's what God does today with us in salvation? Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? I mean, he makes a covenant with us and tells us, uh, you know, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, you know. But as many as received him, that they may be power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. I mean, we're in the hand of God. We're in the body of Christ. All those different pictures that we have. Man, I mean to tell you, those are unconditional. When you call on the name of the Lord, you're saved. Someone says, oh, man, I'll just go do whatever I want. Yeah, well, get ready for the long haul because I guarantee you there's an Egypt waiting. You'll be enslaved by sin. You'll get a good spanking. Not going to be fun. But I can guarantee you this, that promise is unconditional. At that point, it's, it's a done deal. Now, again, we, we have to receive and accept Christ, and we can debate all day whether or not receiving and accepting Christ is a work. We can go ahead and play that game all day long. You know, well, you know, we believe in uh, uh, the tulip, tulip, uh, which is basically, what's tulip again? My mind just went blank. Calvinism. Why do we believe in Calvinism? We believe in Calvinism, somebody would say, because you know what? There's not one thing you can do to be saved. Therefore, God has to impose his irresistible grace on you and you receive it whether you want it or not because man I mean tell you, you couldn't accept him if you wanted to because that'd be a work salvation's by grace through faith my friend we can argue about that all day long but all I know is that God's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and I guarantee you this there is a responsibility in the sense that when we see Christ we need to turn to him I see that in scripture it's pretty plain and pretty clear but once we've done that, man, there is nothing that can take us out of the hand of God, so to speak. We are secure and safe. That's a wonderful truth. And so this promise is unconditional. And so throughout Abraham's life, he is reminded of this unconditional covenant that God made with him. We see that over in Genesis 12. We read about it in verses 1 through 7. That promise was made. We see the promise was confirmed in Genesis 15. We could take the time to look at that, but because of time, we'll not. Verses 1 through 8, verse 18, it was confirmed. We see it restated in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. We see the promise reinforced over in Genesis 22, verses 15 through 19. Abraham is consistently, constantly being reminded that God has made a covenant, and it doesn't matter what you do about this. I have made the covenant. This is what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. You are going to have offspring like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the sea. Man, you are going to be just like God. What about the fact I don't have any kids? What about the fact I'm getting older? Doesn't matter. Let me just... Let me just restate it again. Let me just reinforce it again. You just have to believe, Abram. Well, but, but, but now here I am on top of Mount Moriah, and you want me to stick a knife in my son? Uh, just, just be obedient, Abraham. You be obedient. It's going to be all right. Trust me, this covenant is it's in stone, man. You can take it to the bank. Okay, okay, okay. 
You know, God does the same thing for us, doesn't he, in Scripture. If we take the time and we look at the Word of God, we're so encouraged because we find God restating and reminding and, and, and just constantly and continually reaffirming the fact that we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we, we, we are indwelt by the Holy Ghost, that we are part of the family of God, that we have a home in heaven, that we can overcome sin in our life because of the resurrection of Jesus. Man, that's wonderful. And he just always just confirms it and restates it and reinforces it constantly. And so Abraham was chosen. And you know, Abraham proved to be a mighty man of faith. He absolutely did. However, being the patriarch that he was, he still experienced failures in his life. You know, that, that's, that's just kind of inherent, isn't it, with being human? We're just going to make mistakes. I guess the problem is sometimes we, we act like we shouldn't. You know what I mean? It's like we get mad at ourselves all the time. And, you know, I, I, we should have some expectations to live for Christ. But honestly, we're going to mess up. We're going to make mistakes. And here's the thing. It's one thing to, you know, nobody should be harder on you than you. Nobody should be harder on me than me. And the fact is it ought to bother the life out of us that we fail God. But when we do fail God, even as Abraham failed God, we need to make sure we don't forget that we still have some promises from heaven and that God hasn't forgotten about us and that if we'll just turn back to that same God that we turned our back on just a moment ago, he will be there to help us. Now, it doesn't mean there might not be some consequences along the way, but the truth is, is just like Abraham, man, you could end up in the hall of faith. You think about what Abraham did and, and some of the mistakes he made. First of all, he fathered Ishmael. We know that was a big mistake. God never intended him to get with uh, uh, an Egyptian handmaid and have a child. Think about that again, Egyptian handmaid. That's important to understand for just a moment because uh, you got to think about what Egypt means in the Bible. You got to understand where ultimately the people of God end up in Egypt. You got to realize that Abraham makes his way down into Egypt. Egypt's always a problem in the Christian life too because Egypt represents the world. Man, he fathered Ishmael from a, 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 an Egyptian. Uh, 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 handmaid named Hagar. That was never the will of God, nor was it supposed to ever happen, and yet it did. Man, Abraham, you messed up. And you know what Abraham would say? Yes, sir. I sure did. Boy, I messed up big, more than you'll ever know. Going to Egypt, remember the famine came? Over there in Genesis chapter 12. Look at Genesis 12. You're there anyway. This is interesting because we just, he's called out and in the same chapter. And again, I know that the chapter doesn't reflect time properly. I get that. But still notice what happens in a biblical chronology here. He's, he's just been called. He finds his way into Canaan. He's right where God wants him. And look what happens. A famine comes. Chapter 12, verse 10. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Now, I wonder, in your mind's eye, what does a famine look like when you live in the desert? It's got to be really bad, because it looks bad whenever you're in a nice neighborhood and then you're in a nice country. Can you imagine if you're living out in the wilderness and there's a famine? I mean, you tell you, there's nothing to eat. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to die there. Well, at least that's what you would think, right? That's how you would feel. 
And I think we'd all be tempted to think that way in the midst of that, especially when we have others that are depending on us. I mean, he brought, his, he brought Lot with him. He's got his wife with him. He's got servants. He's got others with him. And he feels responsible for their safety, their well-being. This famine shows up. Guess where he goes? Egypt. Should he have gone to Egypt? Was that where God called him to go? Was that what God intended for him? Absolutely not. But he ends up there. By the way, when he ends up there, not only does he find himself in a mess there, but he also lies about Sarah, his wife. I mean, this guy, he, he's the, he is the patriarch. He is the man with a plan. He's the guy that's got all the answers. I mean, God spoke to him. God called him out of an idolatrous culture and out of an idolatrous home. And man, he set him up to be the patriarch and to start this dispensation and to end it well. And yet here he is already going into Egypt right off the bat, lying about the fact that his wife is really his sister or that, his, that he's claiming his wife is his half-sister, if you will, or sister. Oh, by the way, I mean, she was knocked dead gorgeous, uh, drop-dead gorgeous. She had to be. I mean, honestly, that's what the Bible described her as, drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, she would have been the most beautiful woman you can imagine your laid eyes on because the Bible says that when he thinks about going into Egypt, he says, you know what? We're going to go down there, and they're going to see you because you are drop-dead gorgeous, honey, and they're going to kill me so they can get you. So tell them I'm your brother, and they'll be nice to me. That's exactly what he told her. I've had to pull that one a few times. But anyway, the fact is, you know, because of my wife. I, you, okay, I hope you got that. I hope you didn't think I was trying to say something about me. I was, okay, anyway, I'm moving on. So, so nonetheless, he, that's what he does. Then the problem is then chapter 20 of Genesis, guess what he does again? The exact same thing. He's not in Egypt this time. And, and because of time, but chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, you're going to see that, again, he says, listen, this is my sister. He didn't even learn his lesson about lying. Can you imagine that? Abraham didn't learn his lesson about lying. Chapter 20 of Genesis, what are you doing? I mean, Abraham, where are you headed and what are you doing? He said, man, that's crazy, isn't it? I don't know about you, but aren't you feeling like a little bit of hope right now? I do. If Abraham can mess up like that and God can still look at him the way he did in Hebrews 11, let's turn over there, Hebrews 11, verse 8, I feel like there's a lot of hope for me yet. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. There's still hope for me. Man, I'll tell you what, I, uh, you know, we can make so many mistakes and we can mess up left and right. And, and honestly, we understand, just like Abraham, he, he's going to pay a price for that too. Big price. His family will pay a price. Matter of fact, we're still paying the price in our world today because of his, his mistakes or his sin. But hold on a second. Look at how God views him. Look at, look at this is amazing. This is just downright amazing to me. God still gives him a glowing review. In chapter 11, verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should afterward receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, and not knowing whither he went. He didn't know where he was going. God's called me. I just don't know what to do. I, I just can't take that step of faith. I don't know what God wants me to do next. Will God tell you to move? Move. Do what he told you to do then. 
I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm just telling you, if he gives you a green light to do something, you do it. You say, but I don't know what the next step and the next step and the next step is. You obey God every step of the way. Now, you, you say, well, i got to count the cost. Yeah, well, usually that first step's a lot cheaper than the rest of the journey. So it'll be a lot less if you just get going and doing what God wants you to do. Now, I'm not talking about, well, I just feel like God wants us to build this property and we're going to spend $3 billion doing it and blah, blah, blah. Let's start today. I'll tell you what, if God did tell you to do that, do it. But he doesn't usually work quite like that, does he? Not with finances and stuff. We understand that. But how many young men in this room, how many older men in this room? You know, we're talking about starting a church. We're talking about starting a church. What if God spoke to your heart about being part of that church plant? Would you start, you start, well, I got to count the cost first. Did God tell you to do it or not? Did God tell you to step up and take your place where you belong there? Maybe not as the pastor, but as part of that church plant, maybe? You say, yeah, but I'd have to move. I might have to move. What about my job? What about my family? What about this? What about that? I'm just, I'm not asking you about none of that. I'm asking you, would you obey God? If you knew God spoke, would you obey him? And that's what Abraham did. And that's why here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, look at, by faith Abraham, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise and in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, their heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. Man, God has this glowing review of him. After everything we just talked about, man, I don't know about you, I'm feeling pretty good. I think God can still use me. I think God can still use you. As good and as godly as Abraham was, and he was based on what we read in Hebrews 11, his righteousness somewhat waned in his descendants. They, they, every generation got a little bit less godly, a little less you know, confident in their walk with Christ, so to speak. Isaac was a good man, no doubt. But he wasn't as good as his father Abraham, so to speak. I'm not saying he, wasn't a, he was a bad guy completely, but you don't read the same kind of things about him as you do about Abram. Yes, he exhibited some faith, but Abram, Abraham was mm, just a little bit above that, so to speak. Then, you know, you step up and you start talking about Isaac's son, Jacob. We know him to be, as the Bible calls him, a deceiver. So, it's the, every generation, we just see this, this, this kind of degeneration. But then you have the 12 sons of Jacob. You ever think about those guys? I mean, they're the ones that were going to kill Joseph and ultimately threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. And they would have killed him, except one of the brothers was really, you know, let's just throw him in a pit, but, well... With the exception of Joseph, it just seemed that the generations of Abraham got just worse and worse and worse. This particular dispensation, and I don't have time to go into it, 
and I'm not even 100% sure what I believe about this. But it, it lasts 430 years. And yet when we look at the numbers, it adds up to 645. You say, what? The Bible says it's 430 years. Now, I think it's interesting to note that for a minute. Um, there's just some things about that that are interesting. And I, I don't... Um, I think we're going to find that when we are not where God puts us, I feel almost like time ceases and God does not recognize it. And that's why the Bible says to redeem the time, I think. I think there's an element there where when we are in rebellion against God and we are separated from him, we're backslidden, if you will, in a sense, that time is not counted. I, I can't go into it right now. Maybe one day I'll, I'll speak on it. But I think it's interesting, to say the least. God's going to basically... We know that going into Egypt was a bad move. Ultimately, the descendants of Abraham end up in Egypt, and they're there for 430 years in Egypt alone. I mean, can you imagine that? There was a generation that arose that... Uh, Pharaoh rose up that knew not Joseph and all of that. It was a mess. I want you to look at Genesis 15, verse 13. And I just want to hopefully help us understand because some people say, well, you know, God placed them in Egypt. That's where God wanted them. Well, we know that God's sovereign. We know that God can take the bad and uh, turn it good and all of that. But I don't believe that God ever, ever, ever intended that they end up in Egypt nor that they become slaves. That wasn't the intent that God had for them. Notice what the Bible does say here in Genesis 15, verse 13. And what's going on here is that Abram, Abram is getting uh, reassured again of this covenant. Notice the wording here in chapter 15, in verse 13. And he said unto Abram, and again, he's talking to him about this unconditional covenant. And he's pointing out that Israel in this passage is going to end up in Egypt. And I believe as you read it, you're going to recognize a land that they never were intended to be a part of. And yet God would supernaturally deliver them. And that was proof positive to you, Abram, that I am going to keep my covenant. Watch what he says. He says, and he said, verse 13, unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. Again, I think the issue is, is that God's letting him know. There's, you're, they're going to go into this captivity, so to speak, and into this, this place, Egypt, basically, and they're going to be they're going to be captive there for all of these years. 400 years, he says here. And he says, but they're coming out. And the whole point of that is that Abram is having a dream at this point. And he's, he's asking him, hey, I don't, have, I don't have an heir. Who's going to be the, the, all this sand on the seashore? Who's going to be all these stars you're talking about? Is my servant going to be my heir? No, God says, no, 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 no. No, no, that's not the case at all. So go ahead and build an altar to me and go ahead and make some sacrifice. And then in the midst of the night, 
He has this vision and God speaks to him through here and makes this statement. My point being is this. Abraham thinks it's over. He thinks it's done. And God says, listen, it ain't over at all. I want you to understand, oh, it's only going to get worse. But trust me, I'm not going to forsake you. Oh, you don't believe, that's not, because that's not where they belong. They were supposed to be in Canaan. That's where God called him. That's where the blessing was. And why did they end up in Egypt? Same reason Abraham did right off the bat, chapter 12, because of famine. It's interesting how when we get a little lean in our physical provision, how it does have a tendency to cause us to stray from God. Isn't that interesting? You lose your job, you lose a spouse, you lose your wife, you lose your husband, you lose, um, I don't know, your bank account, your 403B9, your 401K, your retirement plan, your benefits from work after you've retired. You lose those things, and if you're not careful, it may turn you away from God, not closer to Him. You'll go somewhere else looking to have the need met instead of God who said this is where they're met. You say, well, you're not doing a very good job of it. I'm going to have to take things in my own hands, God. And that's what happened many times here, and I think that's what eventually led them into Egypt. Now, as we close this, it's interesting. Look at the last verse of uh, chapter 50 of Genesis. And this is another reason why I believe they never belonged there, why that was never intended. Is God going to use it? Absolutely. Just like he used Abraham, even though Abraham didn't always obey him 100%, he, he's going to use Israel too if they'll let him. Notice what happens here in chapter uh, 50. I want you to note, uh, note um, let's see here. Verse 26. So Joseph died. We know Joseph was faithful being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? He's put in a coffin in Egypt. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem like anything positive to me, a coffin. That, that's just reeks of death. And you know what? He would remain there until God delivered the children of Israel. I don't believe that's ever where he was intended to stay. I think they outlived them, so they lasted way too long there. I wish they would have got out sooner. Who knows what, how things would have turned out for us. But anyway, we see that. So we have this graveyard. So a man, Abraham, the caliber of a man. Abraham, and his, I mean, think about the caliber of his faith. He was incapable of steering the ship right. Even Abraham. I guarantee you this. I, you know what? I don't, I don't have to ask the question. I don't even have to wonder. Was that guy a better man than me? I guarantee he was. I guarantee he had more faith than I got. What are we going to do? We got a man like Abraham? He couldn't even steer the ship right. Before it's over with, they end up out of Canaan and in Egypt and enslaved. He, along with his descendants, were to occupy Canaan. They were exalt the one and only God. And in doing that, he would bless them. He'd bless the inhabitants of the world, even. That's what he promised to do in chapter 12. But like Abraham, 
and his descendants, you and I sometimes turn to the world also. And um, in their case, that failure cost them for the next 400 years, and they suffered in Egypt. What a terrible plight. So the stewards, well, was Abraham and his offspring, Isaac and Jacob. Uh, the responsibility was to dwell in Canaan. The failure is that they chose to enter Egypt, dwell in Egypt. The judgment, of course, was those 400 years of bondage. But then God is going to provide grace again because on the heels of that 400 years is we're going to meet a man by the name of Moses and we're going to watch God do another work in the nation of Israel. So four times in the book of Genesis, God's plan for the human race was frustrated by Satan. The fall, innocence. The flood, conscience. The dispersion at Babel, human government. And now the captivity in Egypt, family, with the dispensation of promise. The devil's always trying to wreck and ruin everything God has planned. And he does a good job of it, so just hold on to your seat. Like they used to, they used to tell me, this is going to be a five-ticket ride. So hold on to your seat, because it's a rough ride out there sometimes. The devil's always fighting us, isn't he? But you know what? We are more than conquerors, just like Abraham. You may trip up and fall. You may make a lot of mistakes. Own it. And then say, God, I'd sure like to get in that hall of faith. I'm turning right back to you. I'm turning right back. Don't stay pointing the wrong direction. Just get pointed in the right direction and let God worry about all the fallout. It'll be okay. Just keep serving Jesus. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this. Uh